Hello folks, this is Eric here at the Working Title Show. This week's episode is titled, Willing and Wanting, and I'm very excited about it. In it, we'll discuss some psychology, some philosophy, some spirituality, some practicality, and hopefully we can learn something along the way. I'd like to thank you folks for tuning in. I really do appreciate it every listener and um let's do this week's episode willing and wanting thank you hey there folks let's start this week's episode with some philosophy. I know, right? Yay. Talking about Pascal's wager. Blaise Pascal was a French philosopher. In 1670, he wrote a book called Pensée, which in French means thoughts. Um, In it, he comes up with what would later become known as Pascal's wager. If God exists, then belief leads to salvation. If God does not exist, then belief has no negative effects. Hence, belief is the safest bet. This is the first formulation of the theory of expected value. When, f- when faced with a choice between uncertain alternatives, you should determine the positive and negative values of every possible outcome. Then multiply the pros and cons and choose the option that produces the highest number. Now in 1738, mathematician Daniel Bernoulli came up with the theory of expected utility. Along with values and probabilities of differing uncertain outcomes, there are two additional factors to be considered. Aversion to risk and utility of a given payoff in terms of subjective preference or need. Value is not absolute. For example, $50 is of greater value to a middle class person than to a millionaire. And thus their decisions in such a gamble could be entirely different but equally rational. Predicting social behavior involves how people make decisions about resources and wealth, making behavior an economic issue. The basic economic assumption being that, when it comes to money, we are essentially rational. The problem is that this assumption is false, the evidence of which is obvious by economists' inability to accurately predict anything from stock market fluctuations to decisions between saving for retirement or playing the lotto. Kahneman and Tversky came up with prospect theory and the concept of loss aversion, i.e. winning $100 is half as appealing as losing $100 is unappealing. The relationship between value and loss or gain is nonlinear. Loss looms larger than gain. This brings us to the concept of framing effects, which, in which context and phrasing can influence somebody's choice. In a study led by Kahneman and Tversky, two groups were given a choice of uh, hypothetical medications for a deadly disease. Group 1 was told that if treatment A was given to 600 people, 200 would definitely be saved. 
if treatment B was given, there was a 33% chance of all 600 people being saved versus a 66% chance of nobody being cured. Group two was given the first option framed as 400 people are definitely going to be lost, whereas the second option was framed as a 33% chance of nobody being lost and a 66% chance of everybody dying. The result is that the majority of group one chose the certain option, whereas the majority of group two chose the riskier option B, gambling on the prevention of loss in spite of its very small 33% odds of success. So framing really does affect our choices, how we present them. And this is very important, especially when thinking of how we view ourselves. Think about framing and how you think about yourself. So what on earth does all of this philosophy and psychology have to do with willing and wanting, which we remember is the topic for today's episode? Well, decision-making and choices are psychological and philosophical issues, but they're also vastly related to willing and wanting. Wanting something and not being able to make the correct choices to get to that thing can frustrate us. It can make life seem overwhelming and a constant struggle. Whereas if we learn how to make better decisions, and by better I mean in accordance with what you want, what you would like things to be, you know? Um, If we focused more on better decision-making to guide our actions, I think we would get what we want more often, and that would really show us if we want it or not, and what we're willing to go through to get it. So it has everything to do with willing and wanting, this talk of decision-making and choices and framing, and even though they're just theories, these psychological principles and philosophical concepts are very, very useful in everyday life, but only if we see the practicality behind them, which is what I'm doing here. I hope. Let's talk a little about heuristics, or in psychology, uh, mental shortcuts used to reduce the complexity of decision-making. One heuristic is known as representativeness, the tendency to ignore statistics and focus instead on stereotypes. For example, Steve is helpful, shy, withdrawn, loves structure and detail, uninterested in people in the real world. Now, if we were asked whether Steve is a farmer, a salesman, or a librarian, people would tend to predict that he's a librarian because he fits the stereotype, even though there are many more farmers than librarians. Next up, for heuristics, we have anchoring. Anchoring is the tendency to stay close to a starting point when making an estimate, even when we know that the starting point could be way off the mark. 
For example, if you spin a wheel yielding a number 1 to 100 in front of participants, then ask what percent of the UN are in Africa, or African countries, rather. Uh, group 1 was given a random number of 10, and their median guess was 25% of the nations making up the UN are African nations. Uh, group 2... They got the random number 65, and their median guess was 45%. The actual answer is 28% of the United Nations nations are in Africa. Um, the starting number significantly biased the estimate, even though the groups knew it to be purely random. Interesting stuff. The next heuristic is availability. Basing the likelihood of an event on the ease at which it comes to mind... For example, a clinician sees a depressed client and the client says, I'm tired of life. Of all previous cases, the clinician recalls a salient event, a depressed client who committed suicide. The clinician may thus estimate the current client's probability of suicide as relatively high, even though very few depressed clients attempt suicide at all. The relative availability of that one suicide in the clinician's memory biased him or her, and hence the clinician overestimates the likelihood of such an outcome in the present case. Finally, the last heuristic we'll go over is affect, and that's the tendency to assess probabilities based on how we feel about particular options. For example, people tend to feel fear nuclear power plants for radiation more than they fear getting x-rays taken but it's actually x-rays that pose a greater risk to our health. That's all well and nice, but let's do something else for a little bit. I wrote this piece called Willing Wanting. What will I do? I will only seek that which I want. If I work a job that I'm not actually passionate about, I may confuse this as not wanting to work there. But if I truly want it out, then I'd simply pack up and quit. If I smoke a cigarette and I don't like the way that I feel afterwards, but still manage to go out and buy another arm and a leg pack of them after I finish these 20 sin sticks, then wouldn't you say to me that perhaps I really don't want to quit the habit? How annoying is it if I complain about quitting but make no progress in doing so? Imagine the frequency at which I complain. You might say it's a willpower issue, but I would suggest it as a want power issue. You see, <clears throat> I see will as a secondary aspect, a result of the inner desires I experience. It is those desires that direct my will. If I want something, then I will, sometimes, exhaustively, figure out how to attain whatever goal I have in mind. This is not the entire story, folks. Philosopher Alan Watts is credited with his notion of the backwards law. This law is, quote, the idea that the more you pursue feeling better all the time, the less satisfied you become as pursuing something only reinforces the fact that you lack it in the first place. The more, you, the more desperately you want to be rich, the more poor and unworthy you feel, regardless of how much money you actually make. The more desperately you want to be sexy and desired, the uglier you come to see yourself. 
regardless of your actual physical appearance. The more you desperately want to be happy and loved, the lonelier and more afraid you become, regardless of those who surround you." Unquote. Alan Watts once summed it up as, when you try to stay on the surface of the water, you sink, but when you try to sink, you float. He also said, insecurity is the result of trying to be secure. What does this have to do with will and desire? The things that I desire are just my psyche convincing itself that I lack these things. This is a cruel trick that I don't have to fall for. I want success, but why? Perhaps I want admiration from others. Why? Perhaps I've mistakenly assumed that I need the love of others to love myself. At least perhaps I feel that love from others reinforces love for self. But I've got it backwards because I need to love myself first and found my love for others upon that marble temple in my heart. I lack inner peace and so I desire it in my heart and head. I then meditate and do yoga. I eat healthy and try to become a holistic being, body, head, and heart aligned and connected. I can sit for hours on end and at the end of the day get nothing out of it unless I realize that I don't do this to attain anything at all. My desire isn't for inner peace. That was just my inner confusion manifesting as this yearning. My true desire is the realization that I cannot cultivate peace within because I am peace within. The funny part about the practice is that I must do the yoga and the meditation and the reflection to attain what I never was without, not for one second. Never have I truly lacked inner peace. I just didn't know what it looked like. So the backwards law can work in my favor because I now know that whatever I'm working on, be it health and wellness, or my career, or my podcast, writing, creative outlets, whatever I'm pursuing isn't out there in the world, but right here in my world. If I want to cultivate love in my life, how do I do so? I act with love. I don't think to myself, Oh, Eric, you are void of love, so go and seek it anywhere you can, because that attitude is useless. Denying my own inner compassion and empathy only serves to confuse my ego into thinking that I lack love. This tacitly means that I cannot, or at the very least, do not generate my own love. It may not seem super important, but this thought is deadly, it is toxic, and it needs to be abandoned. If I'm not the source of love in my life, then who is? If I'm not the wellspring of kindness in my own life, then what I'm doing is appointing someone else, anyone else, to that role. I'm hiring someone else to do something which only I can do for myself. This is tragic, and it's how I lived for 29 years and change. I'm not saying that I can't or shouldn't be inspired and moved by the love that I experience from others. What I am saying is that love should inspire me to realize my own love and then be guided by that. If I want love from another, then I need to learn how to cultivate it within. But the subtle thing about concepts like love and honor is that we need not generate them consciously. They're being created within us in every moment. I want to feel proud of how I live my life and so I focus on how I live my life and not the secondary result of how that life makes me feel. Start at the source and work my way out is the strategy here, folks. Begin in your core and expand ever outwardly. Will is secondary to want. Want is secondary to what, though? The answer is that desire is secondary to authentic living. 
What I mean by this is better explained by example. Have you ever met someone who is just entirely comfortable with themselves for all the right reasons? Have you ever met someone with confidence? Not in the fashion of hubris and narcissism, but authentic, steady, and liberating confidence? Do you know someone so steady in self-knowledge that desire isn't really a large aspect in that person's life? Authenticity lends to a decrease in our desires because it is the dance between faith in oneself and the honest appraisal of one's life. Aligning these two concepts results in a deeply authentic personality, which results in a deeply contented personality. I don't mean to say that my authenticity keeps me so content that I feel no urge to evolve. I mean that my desires have simplified into broad concepts that reach out like rivers feeding every aspect of my life. My desires are focused and understood better and more clearly the more authentically I choose to live. Instead of chasing girls and drinks and good times, which are as fleeting as they are addicting, I now chase truth. I chase service. I am searching up and down every avenue of life, looking for ways to heal and grow and give back. Baby, you gotta learn that love is simple, just like mud, is one of my favorite front bottom lyrics, and that's because it's so true. Life is simple, just like mud. A little dirt and a little water is all we need. We have those all around us, so make love and life with the tools at your disposal. I know that I don't want for anything, really. <clears throat> the etymology of want, where it comes from in its history of language, is circa 1200 AD or uh, CE. 1200 CE, it meant to be lacking, and that came from the Old Norse vanta, to lack or want. Earlier, it was vanatan from Proto-Germanic vanen from Proto-Indo-European veno, the suffix form of the root E-U-E, to leave, abandon, give out. E-U-E is a Proto-Indo-European root, meaning to leave, abandon, give out, with derivatives meaning abandoned, lacking, and empty. It forms all or part of avoid, devastation, devoid, evacuate, evanescent, vacant, vacate, vacuity, vacuous, vain, vanish, vanity, vaunt, void, wane, want, Waste. It is the hypothetical source of the Sanskrit term una, deficient. Avestan va, or lacking. Persian vang, empty or poor. Armenian unain, empty. Latin vacare, to be empty. Vastus, empty, waste. Vanus, empty, void. Figuratively idle or fruitless. Old English wanyan, to lessen. Wan, deficient. Old Norse vanta, to lack. To understand a concept like want, it's sometimes helpful to know where the word originates. I find it interesting that in German, I want is ich wille, which sounds like the English will. Will and want are interconnected deeply. But back to the etymology. In every language, in every stage of history, this word has meant lacking. I would argue, then, that the point of life is to decrease your wants, ultimately arriving to a state of absolute bliss, or lack of wanting. I believe this is the state described as grace, enlightenment, and transcendence. Imagine being so zen that you're not out trying to convince people to think exactly the way that you do. 
Imagine being so zen that the world falling apart around us is nothing because you know there's nothing to do. The world will be what it will be. Of course we can affect change. We can, each in our own way, do things to make the world a better place. But ultimately there's much more at play here than our silly little dreams. There are forces in the face of which we pale in comparison. There are unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. I'm a complete buffoon if I think I can control any aspect of life without losing my sanity. What I need to do is simplify my desires, thus transforming them from a scattered and aimless spray of wants and wills into a focused beam of disciplined yet patient purpose. I can do that by being authentic. I can fully be one with myself. Do I want that? If I do, but I don't want to perform the necessary tasks to get myself there, then what exactly am I doing here, folks? Let's talk about Arthur Schopenhauer, who was a German philosopher. He wrote a book called The World as Will and Representation. It's all der Wille. If my entire experienced world is mere representation, the next question is, what exactly is it a representation of? Schopenhauer's answer is this. The entire phenomenal world, as well as each of the individual items within it, is a representation of will. But what could he possibly mean by this? As long as we rely on experience only, the empiricist philosophers are exactly right. We are able to know only the outer of things, only the aspect of things that shows, only the phenomenal aspect which appears to our experience. As long as we rely only on experience, the only thing we can know is how things appear on the outside and never what their innermost essence is. And with all items in the universe, except one, we are able to experience only their outer, external, phenomenal aspect, never their inner nature. There is only one item in the entire universe which I can know from the inside, and that is my own body. Only in the case of my own body is it possible for me to turn within and know its fundamental inner nature. And when I do turn inward and try to feel or understand what it is at its central core, what we will encounter in there is pure life drive, what the philosopher Henri Bergson terms the élan vital, the life force, the pure energy, drive, urge that is at the center of all life. Schopenhauer says it thus, Whereas in the first book we were reluctantly forced to declare our own body to be mere representation of the knowing subject, like all other objects of this world of perception, it has now become clear to us that something in the consciousness of everyone distinguishes the representation of his own body from all others that are in other respects quite like it. This is that the body occurs in consciousness in quite another way, toto genere, totally different, that is denoted by the word will. It is just this double knowledge of our own body which gives us information about that body itself, 
about its action and movement following on motives, as well as about its suffering through outside impressions in a word about what it is, not as representation, but as something over and above this, and hence what it is in itself. We do not have such immediate information about the nature, action, and suffering of any other real objects. What Schopenhauer is observing here is that every external state of a person's body coincides with some internal will state of that body. Today, we use the term body language to suggest that external actions and states of a body provide some indication of the internal feelings, what Schopenhauer might call will states of that body. Now, I could conclude that my own body is the only item in the universe that has such an inner dimension or will, but that seems unlikely. It's more likely that every living item in the universe, and for Schopenhauer, every item in the universe is, in its inner essence, pure will. This is not so unlike the teachings of quantum physics that every item in the universe consists of pure energy. Schopenhauer requires that we not limit our understanding of this term will to only the notion of consciously willed choices that lead to human acts. We must instead have a much broader understanding of the concept of will. But anyone who is incapable of carrying out the required extension of the concept will remain involved in a permanent misunderstanding. For by the word will, he will always understand only that species of it hereto exclusively described by the term, that is to say, the will guided by knowledge, strictly according to motives, indeed only to abstract motives. This, as we have said, is only the most distinct phenomenon or appearance of the will. If a person is able to carry out the required extension of the concept of will, he will <laughs> recognize that same will only in those phenomena that are quite similar to his own in men and animals as their innermost nature, but continued reflection will lead him to recognize that force that shoots and vegetates in the plant, indeed the force by which the crystal is formed, the force that turns the magnet of the North Pole, the force whose shock he encounters from the contact of metals of different kinds, the force that appears in the elective affinities of matter as repulsion and attraction, separation and union, and finally even gravitation, which acts so powerfully in all matter pulling the stone to the earth and the earth to the sun. All these he will recognize as different only in the phenomenon, but the same according to their inner nature. He will recognize them all as that which is immediately known to him so intimately and better than everything else, and where it appears most distinctly is called will. It is the innermost essence, the kernel of every particular thing and also of the whole. It appears in every blindly acting force of nature, and also in the deliberate conduct of man, and the great difference between the two concerns, only the degree of manifestation, not the inner nature of what is manifested. Thus, the inner nature of everything, the thing in itself of each individual thing as well as of the whole, is will. 
Now that is a skeletal outline of the main elements of what Schopenhauer means when he says that the innermost nature of things is der Wille. Most of his discussion of the will can be found in his works. Will develops mind. One other point we need to make before leaving this section, and then we will return briefly to a passage in Die Welt, The World, that summarizes Schopenhauer's philosophy. The point is this. As will evolves into living things, it develops consciousness, or mind, or what Schopenhauer calls knowledge, in order to help will achieve its wants. We see even in most plants, for example, some elemental awareness of where light is coming from. The plant's will needs light, and it has developed some minimal level of awareness of light so that its will can seek out that light and get what it wants. Animals have a more advanced degree of consciousness in order to help their more distinct development of will achieve its needs. And human beings have developed a relatively rich level of consciousness to help their wills meet their needs. When I want food, for example, consciousness might be put to use to search around it in the world to find where a good pizza might be found. So will has developed consciousness to help will meet its wants. Now we turn to the summary of Schopenhauer's philosophy. Once you have some grasp of this philosophy, you will see that this one short paragraph is a very tight summation of the entirety of Schopenhauer. It reads thus, Therefore, destined originally to serve the will for the achievement of its aims, knowledge remains almost throughout entirely subordinate to its service. This is the case with all animals and almost all men. That is, almost all humans have only enough consciousness or mind to help them meet their will's needs. But some few humans seem to have been born with an excess of consciousness more than is necessary merely for the purposes of serving that will's needs. And it is that extra level of consciousness that allows these people to see more than others can see. Schopenhauer continues, However, we shall see in the third book how, in the case of individual persons, knowledge can withdraw from this subjection, throw off its yoke, and, free from the aims of the will, exist purely in itself, simply as a clear mirror of the world, and this is the source of art. Finally, in the fourth book, we shall see how, if this kind of knowledge reacts on the will, it can bring about the will's self-elimination, in other words, resignation. This is the ultimate goal, and indeed the innermost nature of all virtue and holiness, and is salvation from the world. So, to sum up, Schopenhauer has now told us how things are. We might call this his metaphysic, his description of the fundamental nature of being, and it's not a very pretty picture. Life is full of suffering, and we are living in a world of illusion. That's just how it is. But is there hope? We can now ask, is there any hope? Are we entirely stuck in suffering and illusion, or is there any way to transcend these conditions of being involved in the world? Schopenhauer answers that there is hope, <laughs> but not very much. There isn't much hope, because in order for there to be hope, a person must see how things really are. 
if a person is about to be attacked by a grizzly, or is about to be fired from their job, or is about to flunk a course, or is about to be hit by a truck, if they are blithely unaware that this travesty is about to befall them, then there isn't much help for them at all, is there? In a similar way, if a person is not aware of the real state of affairs in the world, there is not much hope that their suffering can be overcome. But if they are aware of the bear or the risk to their job, or aware of the oncoming truck, then there may be hope for them. Most people, says Schopenhauer, are just not aware of the real situation in the world. And so for them, there is no hope at all. For the person who is aware of the real situation of the world, though, that it is a world of suffering, will, and illusion, for that person, there is hope. You can't always get what you want, the bright side. We all know the stone song, at least people my age and older might. What most of us may not understand is that not getting what we want is a good thing. It's just as good as getting what we want, in fact. Imagine a scenario in which you get everything that you want. Basically, we can think of lucid dreaming, or being in a dream, but conscious of the fact that you're in a dream. You can manipulate the dream to your liking because your brain is what powers the dream. I don't know about you, but at first I'd be doing everything that I want to do. I would be skydiving. No, I'd be flying. It's my dream, right? I'd be Superman zipping through the clouds. I'd go to Hawaii and India. I'd hike the Appalachian Trail. I'd eat delicacies. I would manipulate time and go back to see the Roman Empire, or chat with Socrates in the Agora. On and on I could go for years, decades, centuries. But my point is yet to be made. My point is that given unlimited time I can do unlimited things. My wants, however numerous, are not infinite. My point is that soon enough I'd get tired of getting what I want. My turning point and yours may be different because we're all so different, but the fact of the matter is that nobody could possibly get what they want always without ultimately realizing the cruel joke of the whole process. Our wants being satisfied will not satisfy us. We can't always get what we want and that's good. We would get bored if we did. But that doesn't mean stop wanting. It means don't be a big baby when life doesn't give you what you want. There's a lot to say about acceptance and also what should and shouldn't be acceptable. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is the temper tantrums that I see grown adults throwing in stores when somebody asks them to wear a mask or maintain social distance. That shit is embarrassing. I wish my gut reaction were to sing that tune in my head, but I sometimes get caught up in my own self-righteous attitude of judging and furthering my own thoughts and opinions. This dude having a shit fit over a coupon isn't what I want to see, and I only want to see things I like. So, at the end of the day, 
We're all asshats in our own ways. The point is to minimize our immature antics and learn something from the process. Some are more advanced in this practice than others. Don't let that thought allow you to let yourself off the hook. We all have a long way to go. Part of my continuing education in being a mature human being is calling myself out for bad behaviors and holding myself accountable for my actions. Part of my practice is singing to myself, you can't always get what you want. It's a neat little practice because who doesn't love music and displays of self-control, right? <clears throat> I can't always get what I want because sometimes I want the wrong thing. Sometimes I want something for no reason at all. Sometimes I don't know why I want this or that. How the heck am I going to get what I want if I don't think about what I want? How am I going to be happy with getting what I want when I find out I didn't want it to begin with? This applies to all of us. If I allow every ad to result in a purchase, then I'm a fool. Can I be addicted to impulse purchasing? Of course I can. Amazon knows how our brains operate and have algorithms to track our purchases so that they can suggest more items that we might want to purchase. And on and on and on we go. This isn't Amazon's fault though. It's my fault for falling for it too often. It's my fault for not spending money wisely when I know that I should be. But I want the newest singing bowl made of crystals taken from the Himalayas by the Dalai freaking Lama himself. I want the neatest coffee maker. I makes coffee and cappuccino and frappes and lattes and Americanos and gosh, isn't all that just terrific? Besides the fact that I would never ever go out of my way to make anything besides coffee. Besides the fact that I want a lot of unnecessary things simply because of my addiction to convenience. Besides the fact that I don't need much, I buy quite a bit. I consume and eat pictures of objects I could own with my eyes and let my brain feast on the thought of owning all this useless shit and it satisf satisfies me in a sick and twisted way that only remains sick and twisted when I choose to ignore it. When I choose to ignore my compulsive behaviors of consumption and choose to entertain my mind with dreams of more things and conveniences and appliances, then I let myself down. I let down my great-grandfather who survived a famine and a depression and starvation and the like. I let down every one of my ancestors with this weak-minded lifestyle of wanting to get what I want and seeing nothing wrong with going in blind. We can't always get what we want, but if we try, we get what we need. We can't always get what we want, but if we try, we get what we need. We can't always get what we want, but if we try, we get what we need. I had to say it thrice for y'all because it's important. The only thing between can't get what we want and get what we need is try. Trying, our attitude is the only factor worth investigating. What I mean, is that what we want doesn't always matter and what we need we tend to get because we don't really need much. If we try is Jagger screaming at us all that we need to think and give a fuck. And I know that it's weird that Jagger symbolizes neither of those things, but whatever. 
The source of wisdom doesn't matter, but the understanding of wisdom means everything. We need to try, but we need to be authentic. What do we want? To know what we want. When do we want it? All the fucking time. What do we want? Better self-realization. How do we get it? Better self-reflection. What do we want? You just stop this call and response bullshit. <clears throat> be real. We need to be real. And to do that, we need to know ourselves, folks. We need to know the nitty-gritty, nuts and bolts, hidden crevices in everything of ourselves. Only once we start looking can we make progress towards authenticity. It's a personal problem. But we all have it, so it's relatable as well. Don't be afraid to tell your friend that you aren't into the book that they loaned you. Then maybe y'all can chat, and after learning what made that book enjoyable to your friend, you can see the aspects of it that you would have enjoyed. You could then read the book with fresh eyes of authenticity instead of not saying anything and reading the book like it's some type of homework assignment or something. It's mostly about attitude. My disposition is arguably the only realm of life I have total control over. My internal state is entirely up to me, and I mean that. With authentically appraising my emotions, thoughts, and memories, I can choose not whether I like them, but rather whether I accept them. A mature disposition is all about acceptance, and some might think this to be edging towards cowardice, but to those people I say, turn the sun purple and clouds neon pink. You can't change some things, and if you don't get that, then I can't help you. But you totally can enjoy the sunset and the clouds as they are. You can enjoy the parts of life that you don't affect. What about unquenched desires, though? What about not getting what we want? And to that, I'd say to know why we want what we want is the key. <clears throat> if our motives aren't healthy or beneficial to anybody, then perhaps we should revisit those motives with a brutal self-honesty. Perhaps we should realize that our wants could be better, and we should want this above all else. Then we can see our obstacles as alarms beeping, can't always get what we want, reminding us to reflect on ourselves before thinking we should always be getting what we want. This next part is from the Wikipedia page on will. Will, generally, is the faculty of the mind that selects, at the moment of decision, a desire among the various desires present. It itself does not refer to any particular desire, but rather to the mechanism responsible for choosing from among one's desires. Within philosophy, will is important as one of the parts of the mind along with reason and understanding. It is considered central to the field of ethics because of its role in enabling deliberate action. One of the recurring questions discussed in the Western philosophical tradition is that of free will, and the related but more general notion of fate, which asks how the will can be truly free if a person's actions have either natural or divine causes which determine them. In turn, this is directly connected to discussions on the nature of freedom itself and to the problem of evil.
classical philosophy. The classical treatment of the ethical importance of will is to be found in the Nicomachean Ethics of Aristotle in Books 3, Chapter 1-5, through 5, and Book 7, Chapter 1-10. through 10. These discussions have been a major influence in the development of ethical and legal thinking in Western civilization. In Book 3, Aristotle divides actions into three categories instead of two. We have voluntary acts, involuntary or unwilling acts, and non-voluntary or non-willing acts, which are bad actions done by choice. However, these actions are not taken because they're preferred in their own right, but rather because all other options available are worse. It's concerning this third class of actions that there is doubt about whether they should be praised or blamed or condoned in different cases. Virtue and vice, according to Aristotle, are up to us. <laughs> this means that although no one is willingly unhappy, vice, by definition, always involves actions which were decided upon willingly. Vice comes from bad habits and aiming at the wrong things, not deliberately aiming to be unhappy. The vices, then, are voluntary just as the virtues are. He states that people would have to be unconscious not to realize the importance of allowing themselves to live badly, and he dismissed any idea that different people have different innate visions of what is good. In Book 7, Aristotle discusses self-mastery, or the difference between what people decide to do and what they actually do. For Aristotle, acrasia, or unrestraint, is distinct from animal-like behavior because it is specific to humans and involves conscious, rational thinking about what to do, even though the conclusions of this thinking are not put into practice. When someone behaves in a purely animal-like way, then, for better or worse, they are not acting based upon any conscious choice. Aristotle also addressed a few questions raised later on the basis of what he has explained. Not everyone who stands firm on the basis of a rational and even correct decision has self-mastery. Stubborn people are actually more like a person without self-mastery because they are partly led by the pleasure coming from victory. Not everybody who fails to stand firm on the basis of his best deliberations has a true lack of self-mastery. A person with practical wisdom cannot have acrasia. Instead, it might sometimes seem so, because mere cleverness can sometimes recite words which might make them sound wise, like an actor or a drunk person reciting poetry. A person lacking self-mastery can have knowledge, but not an active knowledge that they are paying attention to. For example, when someone is in a state such as being drunk or enraged, people may have knowledge and even show that they have knowledge, like an actor, but not be using it. Now we're on to some medieval European philosophy. Inspired by Islamic philosophers Avicenna and Averroes, Aristotelian philosophy became a part of a standard approach to all legal and ethical discussion in Europe by the time of Thomas Aquinas. His philosophy can be seen as a synthesis of Aristotle and early Christian doctrine as formulated by Boethius and Augustine of Hippo although sources such as Maimonides and Plato and the aforementioned Muslim scholars are also cited. 
With the use of scholasticism, Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica makes a structured treatment of the concept of will. A very simple representation of this treatment may look like this. Does the will desire nothing? No. Does it desire all things of necessity, whatever it desires? No. Is it a higher power than the intellect? No. Does the will move the intellect? Yes. Is the will divided into erasable and concupiscible? No. I don't know what he's talking about on that last point. This is related to the following points on free will. Does man have free will? Yes. What is free will? A power, an act, or a habit? It's a power. If it is a power, is it appetitive or cognitive? It's appetitive. And if it is appetitive, is it the same power as the will or distinct? The same, with contingencies. On to early modern philosophy. The use of English in philosophical publications began in the early modern period, and therefore the English word will became a term used in philosophical discussion. During this same period, scholasticism, which had largely been a Latin language movement, was heavily criticized. Both Francis Bacon and René Descartes described the human intellect or understanding as something which needed to be considered limited, and needing the help of a methodical and skeptical approach to learning about nature. Bacon emphasized the importance of analyzing experience in an organized way, for example, experimentation, while Descartes, seeing the success of Galileo in using mathematics and physics, emphasized the role of methodical reasoning as in mathematics and geometry. Descartes specifically said that error comes about because the will is not limited to judging things which the understanding is limited to, and describe the possibility of such judging or choosing things ignorantly, without understanding them as free will. Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius considered the freedom of human will as to work toward individual salvation, and constrictions occur due to the work of a passion that a person holds. Augustine calls will as the mother and guardian of all virtues. Under the influence of Bacon and Descartes, Thomas Hobbes made one of the first attempts to systematically analyze ethical and political matters in a modern way. He defined will in his Leviathan chapter 6 in words which explicitly criticize the medieval scholastic definitions. In deliberation, the last appetite or aversion immediately adhering to the action, or to the admission thereof, is that we call the will. The act, not the faculty of willing. The beasts that have deliberation must necessarily also have will. The definition of the will given commonly by the schools, that it is a rational appetite, is not good. For if it were, then could there be no voluntary act against reason. For a voluntary act is that which proceedeth from the will, and no other. But if instead of a rational appetite, we shall say an appetite resulting from a precedent deliberation, then the definition is the same that I have given here. Will, therefore, is the last appetite in deliberating. And though we say in common discourse, a man had a will once to do a thing that nevertheless he forbode to do, yet 
that is properly but an inclination, which makes no action voluntary. Because the action depends not of it, but of the last inclination or appetite. For if the intervenient appetites make any action voluntary, then by the same reason all intervenient aversions should make the same action involuntary, and so one and the same action should be both voluntary and involuntary. By this it is manifest that not only actions that have their beginning from covetousness, ambition, lust, or other appetites to the thing propounded, but also those that have their beginning from aversion or fear of those consequences that follow the omission are voluntary actions. Concerning free will, most early modern philosophers, including Hobbes, Spinoza, Locke, and Hume, believed that the term was frequently used in a wrong or illogical sense, and that the philosophical problems concerning any difference between will and free will are due to verbal confusion, because all will is free. wanting are what we do. They are unavoidable. What we can avoid is the habit of losing our true selves in the storms of will and want. We must become detectives of the psyche. By this I mean we must pay attention to our habits and patterns of behavior, our wills and wants, if we ever wish to change them. Learning about the concepts of will and want, discussing our thoughts on the matter, Thinking deeply about our will and want will lead to deep realization. I hope that my unique mixture of information and reflection isn't too jumbled. I hope each and every listener gets something out of this installment of the working title show because I'm working very hard. I love this work and it gives me such purpose and experiential understanding that I couldn't imagine not being able to share my excitement about all things motivational and helpful. Let's take a brief moment and sit and breathe and let go of our wills and wants. Take a deep breath in with me. Breathe deeply and calm your mind with me. To see clearly, we need to be still. Always remember to breathe. episode. Um, lots of information, lots of talking, lots of stuff to think about. I can't cover the entirety of will and want, even though I want to. So it will take me several episodes to fully delve into this very complicated and deep topic. 
but I think that this is a good start. I hope you folks enjoyed this week's episode. Also, um, due to work and balancing everything in my personal life, I'm going to be moving to two episodes per month, or one every other week. Um, This will not only give me more time to research the topic, but more time to uh, put together and edit. And I think the quality will go up when the quantity goes down. So, um, until next time, I guess, not next week, two weeks from now, um, you folks take care and take a moment of time to think about your wants, your desires, all the things that we wish for, and think about the ones that we will work for. It's about mindfulness, it's about awareness, and it's about self-mastery. Every little bit counts. Have a good two weeks, folks, and thank you again for listening in to the Working Title Show. I'm your host, ever grateful, Eric, signing off. Take care and be good.